Well, thank you to James for leading to this point in the service and for all those who have taken part so far. And it's good to see all of you this evening at the end of this holiday week and on a very warm evening. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if some of you have been doing various activities outdoors this week. And I even wonder whether some of you have ventured to the beach. Actually, Scotland does have beaches, in case you didn't know. And actually, they can be fun places. Uh, On holiday last summer, we were in the UK and the weather was something like this. And we were surrounded by just a throng of people who with us were enjoying the sunshine and lounging on the sand and even some of them swimming in the sea. It was just delightful. But I also discovered recently that that in fact, beaches can be dangerous places. Did you know that? I was reading this week an interview with a UK lifeguard. And he was pointing out just how many dangers lurk on any beachhead. You have the sea itself, of course, often carrying a much stronger current than swimmers anticipate. And you have the the rushing tide and how many are caught out when the, the tide sweeps in all of a sudden and leaves you stranded in some cove or another. And you have the sea creatures... Maybe not so much in Scotland, but in other places, certainly, which may encounter you and which may sting you and bite you. We're speaking to someone about this on Friday, and and they said, what what about broken glass bottles on the beach and things like that, where where your barefoot stands on something like that? Or or the sun's rays. Why? We We could go on. See how many dangers there are. But the problem is, that the lifeguard went on, the problem is that holidaymakers are so excited, they, they are so enthused, they are so relaxed about being on the beach, that they are often less vigilant than usual, and more susceptible to these threats. I found that rather interesting. In fact, as I I thought about this and as I was reflecting on this talk for this evening, it, it really struck me that there might be something of a parallel here to our Christian lives. Because, you know, so many of us, when we begin to walk with Jesus, we're possessed quite rightly with something of a holiday mood and a holiday spirit. We are just so thrilled, so excited, so motivated. To be a disciple of Jesus, it is like a day at the beach. And the problem is that we may be like these holiday makers who are also unaware of the various dangers which surround us as disciples. Dangers which, like the sea, threaten to drag us down. Dangers which, like the tide, threaten to trap us in, like the sea creatures threaten to bite us, hurt us, or even worse. And I I think this is why Jesus 
when he concludes this so-called Sermon in the Plain in Luke's Gospel, a sermon for young disciples and would-be followers, I think this is why he ends not with some happy encouragements, but with some sober warnings. Though it is wonderful to follow me, says Jesus, there are some dangerous disciples face of which you must be aware. And so as we open our Bibles again, and would you open them again if you close them to Luke chapter 6, verses 39 to 49, Jesus wants to impress on our minds and on our hearts and to raise our awareness level of the threats that we face. Whether you are a new follower of Jesus or whether you've been on the road for some time now, these are some of the common threats. And I'd like to suggest that there are three dangers that Jesus brings before us. I borrowed these particular phrases from another preacher, so I'll just give him credit, a guy called Gary Delashmut, because he sums up so well these threats to the Christian life. First of all, the danger of gullibility. Jesus begins with a warning to his disciples that they should not be gullible. Gullible in who they follow, gullible in who they listen to, and who they follow after in terms of the direction of their life. And he teaches this, our Lord, as he so often did, through a vivid parable. He also told them this parable, verse 39. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? And this is not a difficult parable to understand. In Jesus' day, there were many blind people, physically speaking. Uh, The Gospels are certainly evidence to this. Jesus healed many who were blind. And no doubt in these days, blindness was more prolific than today. They didn't have the same kind of eye care and eye treatment that we enjoy. And also in these days, there there were many pits, open wells dug for water, unfenced quarries where various materials were dug from the ground. And of course, there were not the same security measures that, that we have today, the same security standards. And these danger zones were often unfenced and, and unmanned. And so it was not uncommon to, to hear of a, of a story, to, to hear on the news that, that a blind person had stumbled and, and fallen down a pit somewhere, oftentimes fatally to their death. But just imagine the scenario, says Jesus. Not only if one blind person were to stumble into a pit, But just imagine if that blind person were to to act as a guide to another blind individual. To to act as a leading hand to someone else who also cannot see where they are going. Would not the result be inevitable? Wouldn't they both fall into the same pit? Asked Jesus. The answer is obvious. And, And what Jesus is getting at is that it really matters who you follow. It really does count whose teaching you listen to, whose instruction and under whose wing you fall. 
course, at this moment, many people were, were coming to Jesus and in a sense, they seemed to be listening to him. But, but equally, many of these people were just as impressed and just as open to the, the other religious figures of the day. The Pharisees and the scribes and the various other holy men. And, and so some of these folks, they were sort of listening to Jesus in the one ear and simultaneously listening to these alternative competing voices. And believe you me, this sort of thing still happens today. I'd be surprised if there weren't some of us here, maybe all of us here, who at some time or other have listened to Jesus in the one ear, but actually we're, we're listening to the world in the other. Listen to, to Jesus on a Sunday. Give him 30 minutes. And yet throughout the week, listen for hours, read for hours to other voices. Paul McKenna, Maybe. Read some of his books on life coaching. Tony Robbins. How many of you, I wonder, have bought The Secret by Oprah Winfrey and other such life coaches who are giving you a direction for life? I I know for a fact some Christians buy these books and read these books. Or, Or even further, because, you know, we live in this pluralistic culture and in this day and age. Why not listen to other religious teachers, too? Sort of hold your Bible in the one hand and maybe hold your Koran in the other. Maybe that's something you do. Maybe you listen to this teacher and that, Gandhi and Muhammad and Jesus. That's so eclectic and cool today. But Jesus says if we do not follow him supremely, and if we do not follow those who follow him, then we are in grave danger. Because such guides are blind, they are unsighted. I think Jesus is actually deliberately using this image for another reason, because blindness in Scripture describes a dire spiritual condition. The blind in scriptural terms are those who do not know God, who do not know truth, who, as it were, live in the dark, It really describes unbelievers, in fact. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, we read that the God of this age, that is the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And so, if you are following a teacher who is spiritually blind, Jesus says, who doesn't know God, doesn't know truth, doesn't know the light of the gospel, then watch out. Because you are heading into the same dangerous territory that they are going to. Follow them is unsafe, will not both of you fall into a pit. Now, I don't think this means that Christians can never learn from those who do not themselves know Jesus. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In in fact, on, on some occasions, Jesus pointed out that we could learn a thing or two from those who don't know Christ. Remember, on some occasions, he said to them, you know, even the pagans know this. And it seemed that the disciples didn't grasp this common knowledge. There's a general revelation as well as a special revelation. But Jesus' point, I think, is more fundamental when it comes to the central, key, spiritual matters of your life. Matters of life and death, of God and salvation, of sin and forgiveness. Be very careful who you follow. 
And don't follow those who themselves are in the dark. Because they won't lead you to the light. And you know, maybe before you were a Christian, there were all sorts of sources that you drew upon, all sorts of advice that you listened to. And and maybe you were quite indiscriminate about that. But Jesus says now, don't be gullible. If you follow the blind with regards to your spiritual life and its fundamental issues, you will inevitably fall into the same pit as them. Surely the obvious remedy is also clear. If you follow anyone, and we all should follow someone, follow Jesus. And by extension, be sure to follow those who are following him. Who are themselves walking in the light and following the master. You say that's basic, but it needs to be said today, doesn't it? In our country, where I sadly remind you, there are many ordained ministers who really don't know the gospel, who really don't know Jesus. And if you, you explain your faith to them, they, they look at you blankly, not really knowing what you're talking about. And where divinity faculties are, are laden with many who don't follow Jesus in their everyday lives, except a few gracious exceptions. And this is a tragedy today, because like it or not, such teachers are influential on people. That's what uh, Jesus goes on to say in verse 40, that a student is not above the teacher, but everyone who is truly trained will be like his teacher. Jesus is speaking here about their influence. That if you fall under a false teacher who teaches false things, then that's all you're going to know. Because that's the way it works with teachers. You only learn what they teach you. You don't go beyond them, says Jesus. And and if they are blind in their perspective, you're going to be blind in your perspective too. I wonder if we're aware of this danger as Christians. Maybe we're more gullible than we should be. Maybe we, we don't seem to fear the kind of books that we immerse ourselves in. Maybe you're the kind of person and you like to be always reading off the beaten track. Just be careful with that kind of approach. Because sadly, many young disciples, by listening to the wrong person, by following the wrong guide, have been claimed for heresy, claimed for a backslidden life, claimed even for cults and other religions. James Anderson sent me kindly a a story that was a case in point. I won't give you the whole detailed account, but it's typical. You can find this sort of thing on the Internet. This, This girl was brought up in a Christian home, and she had made a profession of faith in early years. And the account went on that by the age of 20, she was still attending an evangelical church. She had been baptized. Some of you here this evening, you're about 20 years of age. You think you're going on pretty well in the Christian life. Well, she was there. And and her testimony was that she hit a difficult patch in her life. And for some unbeknownst reason, she decided, instead of turning to Christian friends, to go to a fortune teller and see what they had to say. Well, she was a little surprised that God didn't strike her down with a bolt of lightning. 
And so on the next occasion, she was even a little bit more open to listen to other camps and other perspectives. And the next time she got herself into difficulty, she spoke to her Mormon friend. And he in turn introduced her to a couple of his friends. And the next thing she knew, she was attending a church of the Latter-day Saints and, and adopting all sorts of beliefs she would never have considered before. Don't say that can never happen to you, by the way. I can tell you that eventually her story ended with a good conclusion, but it was with enormous pain that she would never wish to repeat. And it it all began when she started to listen to the wrong voices, the wrong people. Let me ask you this evening, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Who, Who are the preachers in your iPod when you're walking to work during the week? Or listening to in the car? Or is it those that know Jesus Christ? Who have a vibrant, clear faith and commitment to God's word? Or, or are you kind of dabbling? Gullibility is the first danger. Notice the second danger that Jesus mentions. Hypocrisy. Are you aware that hypocrisy is one of the easiest traps for a disciple to fall foul of? Jesus warns his disciples, not the Pharisees here, they were always being warned about hypocrisy, but this sermon is to disciples. And Jesus warns each of us to beware of hypocrisy this evening. Again, Jesus uses a vivid image. And I just love the sense of humor that Jesus had. doesn't seem to me in reading the Gospels that Jesus was quirky, to use an expression we sometimes use, or the jokey type. But Jesus certainly had a sense of humor, well-developed, a humor which he often used as a weapon. And so that even as people would laugh at the, the sort of funny illustration he would use, they would suddenly pull up as they would realize the serious implication of what he was saying. And I think that's what you see here in this illustration of the speck and the log. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust, verse 41, in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? Can you just imagine the ludicrous situation here? There's two men and and the first man has an eye problem. But it's only a speck in his eye. It's it's just a small flake of chaff or or of wood. It's almost insignificant, except that it's probably going to irritate him if he doesn't remove it. But the funny thing is, you also have this second individual. And he takes it upon himself to to sort this man out, to, to fix his minor problem. Let me take the speck out of your eye, he says, brother. And you know, if you were watching from afar, as we are in a sense, no doubt we are asking ourselves, is he for real? Because this second man has gargantuan problems of his own. Not a mere speck, but but a, a huge plank is protruding from his eye. In fact, it's interesting to note that this particular word that Jesus used in these days, it described the main beam... The, the, the main plank of wood that supported the structure of a house, of a building. It was the largest part of the structure. 
And here he is with this enormous beam in his eye and he's trying to sort this individual out. I mean, I doubt this would be practical. Do do you think he could even get close enough to do it? Do you think he could have even seen the problem? How could he be of any help? Can he even see? But you see, this really pictures, it seems funny, but you know, Jesus says, this really pictures the hypocrite. The, the disciple who is acting like a hypocrite. You hypocrite, verse 42, first take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And clearly we're getting a, a picture here of what Jesus is talking about now. He's, he's obviously referring to, to personal problems, to, to sin problems that we may have and continue to have as Christians. And and he's saying that, you know, your sin, it may be a speck or it may be a plank. But, But all of us have this ongoing struggle. That's the implication. We're all one of those two men or somewhere in between. Spiritually speaking, every Christian has specks. Okay, none of us go without. And the point here is that before we seek to help others, to discern in others the problems that they may have and how they could be fixed. Jesus is not condemning that at all, but he is saying we must examine ourselves first. We need to clean up our act. We need to clear out our own dirty laundry. Because if we seek to help others out with their problems, and we have gargantuan problems of our own, we're not going to be able to help them. And and we're going to be hypocrites says Jesus. But you know how easy it is to do this sort of thing, to criticize faults in others, maybe even the same faults, which are huge in your own heart and in your own life. I remember a wonderful story I heard some years back from Alistair Begg. Some of you might know Alistair. He was, used to be an assistant in this church. And he said that one day he was driving in his car and his wife was in the passenger seat And there were several other car drivers whom Alistair was bemoaning and complaining about. Ignorant drivers. One would cut in in front of him and he would blast off about this individual. And then someone else would show him a lack of consideration. And he would complain, you know, this is what all the drivers are like here in America. But just as he was in full flow on one of these occasions, his wife interjected. Alistair was a little bit taken aback. She said, that's rich coming from you. He was taken aback at first. Now she was about to blow him away. She said, you do the same thing, plank face. (laughs) That's funny. But it's kind of not funny. Are you a plank face? Am I a plank face? Do I try and sort out the world's problems when it is evident even to myself, those that know me best, never mind anyone else, that I have huge difficulties of my own that I need to sort out? Trust me, this is a danger disciples face because we kid ourselves on. We we kid ourselves on that after conversion and after cleansing from Jesus, that sin is done and dusted and it's over. We know that it is in the ultimate sense, but temporarily we need to fight it and we need to clean it up regularly with confession examining our our own eye to see what is the condition here what are the problems that need to be removed 
Where is your place of confession? Do you have a place and a time and a commitment to get alone with God somewhere with your open Bible and to check your eyes for logs and your heart for lies and lust and and all manner of other sins that so easily take root there? Maybe we're not so good at this today as some Christians were generations ago. They were big on self-examination. Thomas Watson, one of my favorite writers from a couple of hundred years ago, he once wrote, Oh, that I might prevail with Christians to take pains with themselves in this great work of examination. It is the note of a false professor to be always abroad, out and about, spying the faults of others, but never at home with his own heart. When was the last time you've been at home with your own heart? See, this is the important thing. This is why Jesus goes on to speak about the tree and the fruit. It's all about the heart. The importance of the heart being right. Verse 43, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. You see, the reason that we need to examine what's in our hearts is because it's what's in the heart that will come out. Into our speech is the example here, but but into our lives as a whole. If our hearts are pure, then we're going to live pure and we're going to speak pure. But if the heart is bad, if the root is bad, then the fruit will be bad. It's very simple, Jesus says. The good man, verse 45, brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You want to know why people speak with filthy speech? You ever hear someone with very bad language? Jesus tells us it's not mainly a mouth problem. It's a heart problem. There's something wrong at the root. There's some unconfessed sin that needs to be dealt with in their life. And you know, if I may speak to you for a moment, if you're here this evening and you're, you're not a Christian, you know, you, you will never clean up your life by trying to just deal with all the externals and try and firefight all the, all the problems and all the sins. Try and just kind of clean up your swearing a little bit or clean up your lying and cheating a little bit. Because the problem is, is not really on the outside, it's on the inside. It's in, it's in your heart, Jesus says. And in the end, it's only Jesus, therefore, it's only God who can cleanse you and deal with that problem. That's why in, in Psalm 51, which is a, a wonderful psalm of confession, in the Old Testament, if you read that psalm, David, King David, he's examining his heart. And and he sees after this examination that it is full of sin. What does David do? Just read the psalm. He he doesn't go and put together an outward reform program. Here's what I'm going to do this week to fix it out. He cries out to God in prayer. And he says, God change me. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Only God can renew your heart and my heart this evening. God knows that. That is why he he sent his son Jesus into the world, as we've been thinking, to die on a cross so that you could be cleansed. 
God's in the business of changing hearts and cleaning them up. Changing people from the inside out. This is very important, incidentally, for those who are out with the church. And and those brothers and sisters in the Lord who have perhaps strayed from him in our witness to them, so that, so that we are not hypocrites as we seek to share the gospel with them and draw them back. I remember some years ago chatting to a younger man who was no longer at church. I think he probably was, is a Christian, but, but far from his father in heaven. I was quite sad when he explained that he was still in touch with many younger Christians in the church he attended. But he said that he knew that that these Christians were not living out the Christian life. He knew them. He saw them outside church. He said, they're just the same as me. The way they speak, the way they act, the way they live. And he said, at at least I'm not a hypocrite. And you know, to some extent, he was right. To some extent, because those Christians were totally unable to help him. Totally unable to provide a contrary perspective because they had gargantuan logs in their own eyes. So we need to mark this into our danger list. Gullibility, one threat. Maybe for some of you that is particularly the issue you need to take away tonight. But hypocrisy is also a very dangerous threat to all of us. But notice a a third danger, and maybe this is most challenging of all, it has been to me personally, passivity. If you went to Sunday school, no doubt you learned the chorus. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rain came tumbling down. It's a great tune, great actions. Uh, My son has been learning it recently and he enjoyed it as much as I used to. But how few children and how few adults really grasp the significance and the meaning of this parable. The wise man, the foolish man, the rock, the sand, the storm, and and the meaning behind the conclusion. And one of the reasons we don't always understand it is because we don't read verse 46, which gives us the context. Why do you call me Lord, Lord says Jesus, and do not do what I say. You see, the backdrop is that that many call Jesus their Lord. They claim Jesus to be master of their lives. They may even listen intently to Jesus' words, like we are doing this evening. They certainly come to religious meetings to to hear God's words and, and to listen to his commands. But Jesus says when push comes to shove, these people fail to build their lives on Jesus' words. There is profession without action. Verse 49, the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without foundation. And we usually refer to this man, the look does not hear, as the foolish man. Because look at what he is foolishly doing. Why? He's trying to construct something of great substance, great importance, great weight and value. Indeed, his home. 
And he's, he's trying to do this on ground without foundations. Construction without foundations. Of course, the funny thing about this is that those who are looking on probably think he's got an impressive building project. Now, this man seems to have his house in order. Maybe it looks just as good or even better than all the other houses in the community. And, and yet Jesus says the results of when we marginalize his word, for that is what this represents, He says the result of when we don't put Jesus as the cornerstone and the foundation of our life is that we will not have foundation. That is certainly true if you're not a Christian. Your life may have all sorts of things in its construct that pertain to it, but it has no foundation underneath. But this is even true for the disciple of Jesus. We dare not continue our Christian life on any other foundation. Or guess what? We will have no foundation at all. And you don't need to be an architect to guess what happens next. The moment the torrent, some bad weather, some flood, struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. Immediately. Destruction without hesitation. The moment the torrent struck the house, listen, it didn't just shake a little bit. It didn't just falter a little, it fell to pieces. And I think Jesus wants to get through to us this evening in the strongest words possible, that without his words of truth, every day at the foundation of our lives, our lives will not merely falter a bit, they will in the end fall to pieces. Is is that too drastic? Jesus doesn't seem to think so. Maybe if we really believed this, we would be much quicker, much less stubborn to put God's word into practice. If we really thought that things were going to fall apart. I mean, let me just put it to you straight from the passages we've been considering these last few weeks. Let's just take last week. How many of us have said, Lord, Lord, and done what Jesus told us to do last week? What about that business last week of Loving our enemies. Remember that very challenging word from Jesus. Did you sort out that problem with the work colleague who you've not been speaking to? Did you offer the hand of friendship to the family member who, again, you are on very frosty terms with? Or with that church member that things just are not right? And you keep saying you're going to do it. And I keep saying I'm going to do it. But do we do it? How am I getting on with the truths of the week before? Rodney was preaching about eternal joys and eternal perspective, even amidst difficult circumstances. Do you remember that sermon? Has that been applied in your life as you went through trials recently? Have you had that perspective? Jesus commanded us to do that, to have that. And I could go on, but you get the point, hopefully. You see, so often we say, Lord, Lord, and we sing, Lord, Lord, and we even preach, Lord, Lord, but we really don't do what the Lord says. Thomas Watson, he really was a pithy commentator. Uh, He would still sell books well today, I think. He once said, oh, that we might see the Bible printed on our lives. Isn't that a challenge? Not just printed between these book covers, but actually printed in the way that we live. 
So that when we go out this week, the points of this sermon actually become the points of your life and my life. Because, this is wonderful, when we take Jesus' words that seriously, we avoid so many dangers. And whatever befalls you in life, whatever difficult circumstances and storms come your way, the promise of Jesus is that you will stand. I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. Listen to this. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. That's always what the builder's trying to do, isn't it? When he starts a new construction project, he just keeps digging down until he finds the rock. Because he knows that that is the firm foundation. And do you know that hearing Jesus' words and obeying Jesus' words is what gives you that firm, rock-solid foundation in your life? Maybe you're a Christian, but you need to be reminded of that this evening. And when the flood came and the torrent struck that house, because that's what happens to Christians as well as those who don't know Jesus, that house could not be shaken because it was well built. You know, you can stand this evening, whatever circumstances you're going through. I know for sure tonight, some of you, some of you are going through experiences which would not be too drastic to describe as a storm, as a torrent, as a flood. And in some ways, I don't have any pithy advice to give you this evening. Except this, take your stand on the Lord Jesus Christ on the one who is the rock, listen to him, obey his word, whatever else is going off, and you will stand. That is the promise of God's word this evening. And I know some of you here can testify to this much more than I can. I'm sure we could bring a string of people into this pulpit who could testify of how at times in their lives things have fallen around them. Maybe health, situation, maybe relationships, employment. And it it seemed like your whole life was going to be swept away, but you're still here. Why are you still here? It's not because of something in you. It's because of something that was beneath your feet. So that's what I want to leave you with tonight. You could leave this evening with a very unhealthy fear of the dangers you face as a disciple. Leave with vigilance. Take to heart these warnings against gullibility, hypocrisy, passivity. Avoid them like the plague. But above all, be secure. Be secure by planting your feet firmly on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and His words. Listen to this. No danger can overwhelm you if the Lord Jesus Christ, the rock, is underneath you. That is God's promise to you tonight, whatever your your situation and circumstance. Let's pray together.